0: Today's episode is brought to you by Craftsy. Whether you're new to making or looking to advance skills in a favorite hobby, Craftsy is the place to learn. With over 1,500 classes, there's something for everyone, from knitting and sewing to baking and cooking, gardening, embroidery, quilting, and more. Visit Craftsy Offers today and get a full year of Craftsy premium membership for just $3. That's 97% off the regular price. Start turning ideas into projects you can be proud of. Thank you so much, Craftsy. And now, here's the show. Welcome to episode 192 of the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals where you can strengthen your creative business, stay up to date on industry news, and build connections with our supportive trade association. Check it out at craftindustryalliance.org. Today on the show, we are talking about sustainable fashion with my guest, Katrina Rodabaugh. Katrina Rodaba is an artist, author, and slow fashion advocate. Her work examines social and environmental issues through craft techniques like hand stitching. Since 2013, she's focused on sustainable fashion by using mending, natural dyes, and redesign in her fiber arts studio. She teaches classes, designs, and makes goods for her online shop and writes books, including her newest, Make thrift mend. Katrina currently lives in the Hudson Valley of New York with her husband, two sons, nine chickens, a hive of honeybees, and many dye plants. Katrina, welcome.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: It's so exciting to talk with you. I have admired your work, your books, your newsletter for many years. So it's great to finally have a chance to sit down and talk. Um, so I I would love to, we're going to work our way up to the newest book, but I'd love okay. to kind of back up a little bit and talk about um, your early years. So where did you um, grow up?
1: I grew up in Horseheads, New York, which is a small town in Western New York. Um and yeah I lived there mostly until I was 18 and then I went to college in Ithaca New York which is about 45 minutes away from there. So I was in western New York for the the many years of my of my early life. And what did your parents do for work? So my mother stayed at home um and my father was an optician an optometrist he was an eye doctor. Um, and he came from a very big family. He was the youngest of nine and, um, the only one in his family to graduate from college. And my mother's family is from that area of the world back to like the 1600s. So there's like farms and hollows and roads named after my mom. So my family is very much rooted in that small community, um, where we grew up with, you know, a very large extended family as well.
0: Wow. Okay. And do you have siblings? I do. I have a brother and a sister. Okay. And and were you all creative, you know, as a kid or into kind of nature and, and environmental things as well? Um, yes
1: and no. I mean, my mother always says I give her too much credit. But I feel like all of my um, work in fiber arts really stemmed from my mom. The thing is, I mean, no one in my family would consider themselves an artist. Um, but you know, my mom was always doing some kind of needlework or knitting or quilting. Um, and it was a hobby for her. And then my father was also very much a hobbyist. I mean, he was always like working with the fruit trees and, you know, kind of tinkering in the garage kind of thing. Um, when he wasn't at work. And so I feel like I kind of grew up with this understanding of creativity and this relationship to the land. We had two acres um, of land and we had a small, a small fruit orchard and um, a pretty big garden at some point. We also had chickens and all sorts of other animals. um, No, no large farm animals. So. It was just sort of, I think, kind of the norm to be using your hands and to be spending time outside. Okay. Um, although my mom kind of laughs that, you know, I've kind of
0: taken that to the next level.
1: But, <laughs> yeah, it was in there.
0: <laughs> okay, got it. And so, um, when you went to college, did you um, did you study something related to um, some of those sort of you know ideas that were in your childhood?
1: um yes and no it's funny uh my father was quite sick when i went to college he died of cancer my freshman year and he really wanted me to go to college to study arts and i thought that was crazy that was like the least practical thing i'd ever heard great granted i was 18 and like what did i know about being practical right but um, yeah, he really wanted me to go into acting because I had done some performing in the um, in the high school plays, and I just thought that was crazy. Like, what was I going to do with a degree in acting? So instead, I went with um, environmental studies, which turns out was not necessarily any more practical. Um, and it wasn't really until I was in my mid twenties that I started identifying as an artist and I started working. I had been working in the arts, um, but really turned to my own practice. So my environmental studies was my focus in um, college, and then I. Went back for an MFA in creative writing when I was 28.
0: Okay, and in between there, you worked for some an arts organization of some kind.
1: I did. Yeah, I worked for nonprofit arts organizations from the time I left college until I had my son. Um, so for 12 years, I worked for um, nonprofit community theaters and galleries and community art spaces in um, Oakland, California, San Francisco, California and Brooklyn, Manhattan.
0: And I'm wondering if there were some things that you learned during that stretch of working in an arts-based institution, interacting with the public, with the you know the art appreciator um, that you sort of carry forward into the work you're doing now.
1: Yeah. I mean, I learned so much because I didn't go to art school in college. College. I feel like in so many ways, my arts training came through these um, practical relationships and these working relationships in these community spaces. And because I worked for a number of arts organizations, um, you know, from the time I was 22 until I was 34, um, those mentorships that I had with my my bosses, a lot of times, you know, the people who were running the organizations. Um, One of my colleagues joked when I left my last job that his graduate degree had been in the work that he was doing instead of actually going back to college. And I think that's really true. I mean, for people who work in nonprofits, uh, you have to be very resourceful, right? I always worked in small and mid-sized nonprofits, um, so you're understaffed and you're dealing with limited resources, but your asset is really your relationships in the community. Um, And your asset, I think, is really being a core part of that community. And so I learned, uh, I really learned a lot about that um, from the people that I was working with.
0: Mm -hmm. I can totally relate to that. I worked for a nonprofit as well in between and very useful, very helpful and definitely, definitely under resourced. So (laughs) I totally get that. Yeah. 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 Being creative and um, having, showing ingenuity um, for sure. Yeah. Okay. So you went back to school and you did focus on creative writing. um, And what was that experience like for you?
1: Yeah. So just to kind of like bring the chronology forward. So I left at college when I was 22 and I moved out to San Francisco. I lived out there for three years and then I moved to Brooklyn, New York, and I was there for three years. And when I was in Brooklyn, um, I, I think I kind of admitted that I had wanted to study poetry and that I had wanted to study creative writing, although I had argued with my father that it was impractical. I mean, in, in some point, At that part in my life, I feel like it kind of felt like the most practical choice because it was my passion and because I'd been working in the arts and saw the practical applications, right? What people were doing to make a living. Um, And so I I ended up going back to Oakland to go to Mills College to do an MFA in creative writing. Uh, But the focus was in poetry. And what actually drew me to Mills at the time was their book art studio. And so they had a letterpress printing and bookbinding program. Um, And as part of my degree, I got to train and then later teach in that studio. So that was very, very formative for me because it was this moment when I could take my interest in handwork. I mean, I've been sewing and doing all kinds of creative work on the side all along. I just never really considered that part of my profession. And it was really in my... professor in graduate school in the book arts program who suggested that I was a fiber artist because I kept trying to bring fiber into the book arts studio. I was making books out of cloth and running fabric through the letterpress. And just any chance I could get, I kept bringing in fabric and textiles. And she was like, I think you're really a fiber artist. And honestly, I didn't even really know what she meant. Like, I was like, well, what do you mean just because I'm working with fabric? And she was like, no. And, and she kind of sat down with me and really legitimized the training that I'd received with my mother and that my mother had received with her mother in this very kind of like feminist context of, well, just because you didn't go to school for this doesn't mean that you don't have an understanding of this. And that really just opened up the whole world to me. I felt, um, I felt like I had access in a way that I didn't before because I I didn't come from an arts family. I didn't have an arts background. Right. And so that was kind of where I feel like it all, it all kind of blew apart and, and I saw the opportunities to go deeper.
0: Okay. So, um, when you came out of that program, what did you do next? Like, how did you you know, sort of shift your career from working at arts nonprofits to something different? Or what, what happened next?
1: Yeah, I didn't, I didn't shift it. I went right back to working for nonprofits. And I actually worked for the college, which was a nonprofit all the way through Um, I worked in the office my first year, and then I worked teaching my second year. And then I went right back to working for Nonprofit Arts, and I was, um, you know, doing my own work on the nights and weekends. And I was doing really um, interdisciplinary work at the time. So I had letterpress printed Gertrude Stein poems onto pieces of fabric, and I had um, selected, I think there were maybe 10 other artists to help make the Um, fabric into dresses and wearable garments. And then I worked with a choreographer and musicians to have dancers getting in and out of these garments as part of this installation. And it took me three years and it was, I got grant funding and all this stuff, but I was doing that on the nights and weekends. I also started my blog around that time. I started participating in the Renegade Craft Fairs around that time. So I was really kind of working nonstop, right? But I loved it. And my husband's also an artist, and we were just really entrenched in this, like, Bay Area arts life. And then I got pregnant, right? And I still thought somehow I was going to do all of this. Of course. We all do. We all do. Yes. (laughs) I had no idea that, you know, I mean, my oldest child is nine, I had no idea that, you know, 10 years later, I'd still be trying to balance what I'm doing. Um, So I ended up actually leaving the nonprofit that I had been working at. uh, And I didn't really have a very good plan. I just knew that I couldn't do all of it. Um, And because I was working at a nonprofit, you know, when I did the math of like having full time care for him. (laughs) I was a public school teacher.
0: So I get it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a real challenge, right? And so I made up this crazy formula for myself that I decided if so, you know, I had my nonprofit salary. And then if I was to pay someone to watch my son plus commute time, I looked at what was left, which wasn't very much. And I realized, well, what if I could just make that amount each month? Right. If we could could live on this with me working and hiring you know someone to care for him what if I could just make that much and at the time my husband was um, fully employed with another arts organization and so he was like okay I mean that's kind of crazy but okay you know and so I went for it and that's what I was doing through the renegades and um, through the craft fairs and through my blog and an online shop Um, and let's see he was born in 2011 and then in 2015 my first book came out so it was 2013 that I signed the first book deal.
0: Okay. So it was. So it what? Was really what kind of things were you selling? Were you selling? You weren't selling the Gertrude Stein dresses. What were you selling yeah. at Renegade? And what were you blogging about at that time?
1: Yeah. So when I left graduate school, um, I was 30. And I felt like I had just had this like really immersive experience with with creative community. Different than when I'd been working in nonprofits because I was behind the desk, right? I was working in fundraising and I was working in program development, these sorts of things. And so I felt like I was just really immersed in this creative world. And then when I finished graduate school, I didn't know what was going to replace that. Like I didn't really know what was going to be my creative community. And so I started blogging because it just held me to a deadline. Every Monday I would yeah. blog about what was yeah. going on in my studio life. Um, This was before my son was born. And so that's what I did. I just, once a week, I would blog about what I was making, what I was reading, what shows I was going to. And you know, this was a long time ago. This was a different blog world. Yes. I started finding other people who were doing the same thing in the Bay Area. Um, And those people became my friends, and that became my creative community. And at that time, I was really experimenting with a lot. I mean, I was still using recycled materials. Um, The Gertrude Stein uh, garments were also worked on uh, recycled fabric. But I was making like, you know, softy monsters out of like cut up sweaters. And I was still letterpress printing like note cards and notebooks. I was making these handmade mobiles um, and these like soft sculptures out of, you know, bits of fabric and things like that. Um, garlands, I did a lot of paper garlands. So I was still really working between paper and fabric at the time. And then the um, interdisciplinary work that I was doing was usually grant funded. I also started like, It's funny, all the roles. I started designing sets and costumes because my husband worked in performance. So a lot of our friends were putting shows together and I would design for them. I mean, I really kind of just pieced it together those first couple of years.
0: Okay. And so um, you mentioned getting your book deal. um, Mm -hmm. And I wondered um, what sort of you, how that came to be. Like, What were you creating that caught the attention of the publisher? Your first book is also with Abrams. Is that right? No, my first book is actually The Paper Playhouse. Oh, that's Um, right. The Paper Playhouse. Awesome art projects for kids using paper boxes and books, right?
1: That's right. Yeah. So that um, came out in 2015. Uh, So I was writing it in like 2013, 2014. And um, it was about upcycled paper crafts for or with kids. Um, and so there were, you know, paper, again, kind of the work I was selling in my um, Etsy shop and at the craft fairs, translating that to the book. So paper garlands out of like the insides of envelopes, right. And, um, making book sculptures and that kind of thing, lemonade stands out of cardboard boxes. Um, so that was my first book and that was actually with, uh, Corey book.
0: Okay. All right, great. And so did they find you through your blog or did you reach out to them with a proposal? Um, kind of both. I had actually been, uh, someone reached out to me
1: f- through my blog to write a similar book and it didn't end up happening. And then I was talking to a friend of mine um, who had just published with Corey and she was like, well, that's crazy. You have this whole proposal. You even have sample projects. You should just shop it around. And I was like, why would anybody, I, I mean, I had such a small following. I just come out of this very experimental poetry program. I mean, I really didn't understand how the the craft publishing world worked. So she talked me into it and she introduced me to her editor. And I, you know, I had this proposal and, and these projects ready to go. And so together we sort of uh, developed the the paper playhouse.
0: Okay. And so I'm wondering what you learned from that experience that then helped you sort of shape um, the next book, because um, it sounds like your your next book is has done really well. I love it. Um, Mending Matters. Um, and it for me, like taught me how to mend my jeans and make them pretty. Um, and I totally got it out of the library and and loved it. And it's now I think in the seventh printing. So I'm wondering, like, after that first book experience, when you said you didn't really know anything about craft publishing, mm-hmm. how you kind of, I know for myself too. like, after the first book deal, I was like, okay, I see how it's done. So did you yes. have that
1: revelation as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't think you can understand. I don't, I don't, it's like anything, right? But I don't, I didn't have any idea what kind of work was entailed in making a craft book until I made that first one. Um, And I think I also, at the time, I mean, the book came out in January, 2015. My second son was born in March, 2015. And we moved across the country to a 200 year old farmhouse in October of 2015. So it was a big year, yeah, (laughs) like a really epic year. And I also really didn't have any idea how to share the book with the world. You know, I didn't really understand, um, you know, there was no book tour or anything like that. Like, I I didn't really understand how to do that yet. And I think that I, I had the experience of the proposal and the writing and the editing in my first book. Um, and then we moved and my life got so uprooted and it was really in the last five years that we've been here that I think I've really, I've built a business that has a lot more potential than, Mm -hmm. you know, than what it was when we left California.
0: And, and what, um, are the elements of a business that has potential? Do you feel like, gosh, I, I mean, I guess I probably shouldn't have said that because it's
1: like every day I'm trying to figure that out. Right. Right. But I guess what I mean by that is at this point, I sort of have like three parts to my business. I have the online shop still, but I'm not making everything by hand anymore. Um, I mean, I have a studio assistant who works with me five to 10 hours a week, and she does a lot of the sewing. So we'll design together. She'll sew. We'll bring it back. We, you know, we'll kind of work out the details. Um, and I can sell my own book, at the shop, and um, things like that. But I also teach. And before the pandemic, I was teaching entirely in person. Um, and now I'm just trying to build up, you know, those online classes. And then the writing and publishing. So I think at this point, for me, having those three different areas um, has allowed me. You know, I can kind of focus in one, and the other two can maybe go a little bit more dormant. And then when that ends, I can kind of shift my focus. Um, and that's kind of what I needed to do.
0: I want to take a minute now to hear from our sponsor, Craftsy. Here is a message from Craftsy. At Craftsy, we know making. Whether you are new to the handmade life or looking to advance your skills, we have classes for all maker levels and interests, from knitting and sewing to quilting and embroidery, cooking, baking, paper crafts, and more, Craftsy's instructors guide and encourage you, empowering you to turn ideas into realities. And they have an exclusive offer for Craft Industry Alliance podcast listeners. Right now, you can get a whole year of their premium membership for only $3. Visit CraftsyOffers.com to sign up and the discount will be automatically applied at checkout. For only $3, you'll get a full year of access to over 1,500 premium full-length classes. It can be challenging to know where to go to learn new things, especially when you're an absolute beginner. Craftsy's instructors help build strong foundations as they teach, setting you up for success and helping you fix mistakes as you go. Their enthusiasm and strong teaching style make learning accessible to all. If you're an experience maker and looking for new challenges and fresh projects, Craftsy is for you too. From perfecting your fondant skills, to tackling complex stitches, from eye-catching garden design, to next steps in sourdough, Craftsy has advanced classes in all crafts from instructors who are experts in their field. With over 1,500 classes including downloadable patterns and recipes, Craftsy has a class and a craft for everyone. Visit craftsyoffers.com today and get a year of Craftsy premium membership for just $3. That's 97% off the regular price. Start turning ideas into projects you can be proud of. Get this exclusive offer at craftsyoffers.com. Thank you so much, Craftsy. And now back to my conversation with Katrina. And it sounds like you um, heard an interview on Fresh Air, maybe about um, uh, with Elizabeth Klein, who wrote Overdressed. Um, And that interview sort of um, clinched something in you that made you sort of shift from kind of book arts, interdisciplinary, you know, that sort of stuff to really working on sustainable fashion.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, the the Rana Plaza uh, factory in Dhaka, Bangladesh collapsed on uh, April 24th, 2013. And um, I started my project, Make Thrift Mend, in August 2013. And so I'm going to say I probably heard Elizabeth's interview hmm, maybe like around, I can't remember exactly, I would say maybe around May it was very recent after um, after the factory collapse had happened. And for me, it was three things. It was the factory collapse was really this huge shocking moment to me. And maybe it shouldn't have been so shocking, but I was so ill-informed. I, I really had no idea the working conditions that people were um, having to endure to mm-hmm. be part of these uh, fashion factories. So the fact that it collapsed, I mean, it was a structural failure. That was just I, I, it was it still is. It, it's kind of unbelievable. I mean, it's not because we know that's what's happening. Right. But it's almost um, unimaginable that people can be working under those conditions. So that was a huge, huge moment for me. Um, and I think also understanding my own complicit, like understanding how I was part of that system. Right. By, by buying clothes that were part of fast fashion, by just being blind to it, by not educating myself. And then, um I also read a blog post by Natalie Channon, um, who runs Alabama Channon, who's been really leading the way in sustainable fashion for a long time. And she, if I'm remembering co- correctly in this in this blog pro- post, she wrote two. I think other designers during New York Fashion Week asking them to consider sustainability. And it felt like this big moment, just like what a powerful thing to do, right, to ask your colleagues to be more responsible. And I also heard Elizabeth's interview. So for me, it was those three things that they kind of just intersected at the right moment for me, Um where I thought, oh, my gosh, I I did have a background in environmental studies, you know, in college. And then I'd worked in these arts organizations, and I was always, like, trying to get our offices to recycle, right? And I was, like, trying to to shop at the farmer's market as much as I could. And in my personal life, with the means that I had, I was trying to be as sustainable as possible, but I really hadn't considered fashion at all I mean I would shop secondhand sometimes but I didn't really consider the fibers or the labor or the ethics of the companies so yeah it was a huge moment for me a lot changed
0: and you created this project for yourself mm-hmm. or I guess it was like a almost like a challenge for yourself and I've heard other people do this as well where um, you know you aren't gonna buy new clothes for a period of time so talk a little bit about how you structured that what it was called and how you kept yourself accountable any challenges as you you encountered that first year
1: yeah well again because I was embedded in this kind of arts community in San Francisco I really started the project for what's called like a social practice project so I really started the project as what would be a personal project for me where I wouldn't necessarily have a final product but the experience and the engagement of the project how it would change my life how to interact with the people around me would be the art project itself Um, So people have referred to it a lot as a fashion fast. And yes, that's what it was. But it really came out of this place of, okay, I want to put the emphasis in this on the process instead of putting the emphasis on the product, right? So Mm -hmm. instead of making an installation, I'm going to document my process and how this changes me. Um, And so that was my idea. And I was going to do that for a year, Um, August 2013 till August 2014 was what I thought. And I felt like I just needed to kind of press pause. And if I gave myself this period of time, which felt very challenging, right? A year without new clothing, that felt like a long time. But I knew I kind of had to push myself. It couldn't be a month or two months because that seemed too manageable in a way, right? Like I wanted to really push myself to change my habits. Um so I called the project Make Thrift Mend, and that's where you know, the phrase comes from. And I wanted to focus on making simple garments, which was something I'd actually done in college for extra money. I sewed and um, sold dresses at a local boutique when I was in college. And so I thought, OK, well, I know how to make certain patterns. Like, let me try this. So I was going to make simple garments and shop secondhand and uh, mend what I already owned. And, um, that's what I did for a year, and you know there were things this was twenty thirteen, so there were things that were really challenging, like underwear <laughs> was impossible, socks and underwear it was really hard um and now there's a lot more options for that and so I did the first year of it, and I felt like I hadn't gone deep enough, and so I wanted to do it for another year and each i and now it's my eighth year of it, and I never went back to that sort of just like um. Just that kind of like impulse shopping or fast fashion shopping, um, just that kind of can come out of a place of habit, right? For one year, I decided that I would buy clothes if they were made by like a local maker or an independent maker, right? And then for another year, I decided I would buy new clothes if they were um biodegradable and then again i would buy new clothes if they were sustainably or ethically made and so basically like each time i ran into a roadblock i or like a stop i realized that that was an opportunity for me to find a new solution so I had had two pregnancies, right? My second child was born in 2015. Like I desperately needed new underwear. And I thought, well, this is ridiculous. I can't just not buy them. That doesn't make sense either. So then I had to figure out how to buy underwear sustainably, right? Because I didn't want to buy them secondhand. So I felt like after each year, there was kind of this new understanding. And really, it allowed me to better connect with what other people's challenges were too. Um because it's not practical to not buy new clothing ever again, you know, nor is it practical for a lot of people to only buy what would be like quote sustainable clothing. Um, so I think that that, that kind of, it just kept opening up the doors for me. Um, and one year I turned to making again because I missed it to trying to make my studio materials as sustainable as possible, which is actually one of the more challenging parts. Um, and in the midst of that, we moved from California to upstate New York. So then I, I encountered like different climates, right? Because I was in this very mild climate of, of uh, Oakland, California. And then we moved here and suddenly it's 90 degrees in the summer and, you know, 10 degrees in the winter. So I had to figure that out too.
0: And so how are you documenting this? Was this still through the blog? It was through the blog for a
1: long time. I actually just built a new website. And in doing that, I actually took my blog down because I think my last post was like, I had posted like once a year, <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) in like 2018, 2017. Um, So yeah, for a long time, it was on the blog. And I can't remember when I stopped blogging. But when we moved here in 2015, the blog didn't really feel like it was as big a part of my life anymore. And then at that point, I was kind of moving over to Instagram. So yeah, I documented through Instagram. And I documented um, on my website in my classes, um, you know, with photographs and a portfolio and that kind of thing. But at some point, I think I stopped documenting because I was just living it. Right, right. I realized that it was no longer this one-year
0: project, right? And it had kind of become a way of life. So how did this become a book? Because the new book that just came out is by the same name. And so I'm imagining Make Thrift mend in some way, you know, or let's actually even go back to the first book. Um, not the first book, the second book, the book in between. Um, mm-hmm. that, um, so how did that one become a book, Mending Matters? Because it sounds like mending was part of this project. It wasn't the only part, but it was a part of this project. And, um, and you had written a book before and you were developing an audience both through the blog and then later through Instagram. So, um, so you know, it sounds like you also really enjoy writing. And I, I can tell from your newsletter that you, you do, you have a flair for writing, like you, you write very well. So I wondered um how this, this book, Mending Matters, came to be.
1: Well, so let's see. So I started the project in 2013. And I think that's around, if I had to guess, that's around when I started teaching in the Bay Area. Um, Maybe later, maybe it was like 2014. But I was teaching some classes based on the material in the paper playhouse, right? So like these upcycled paper projects, um, and these kind of paper sculpture, things like that. So I, I was doing that. And then someone asked me to teach mending, because I Came in with my mended jeans, right? Oh, okay. You were wearing them. Jeans. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, probably. And I thought I, I mean, I was I was literally shocked. I was like, wow, teach mending. Like, why would you want me to teach you that? Right. Well, you
0: were so ahead and, of the game because like now mending, you know, is everywhere. But you know, back then it that the look of those jeans with the visible stitching and everything, it that just was didn't seem to exist back then.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that it was it was something for me in the project and which was totally created, right? I mean, I created the parameters of the project. But in the parameters of the project <clears throat> I couldn't just go and buy new jeans and because I was, you know, playing on the sidewalk with my toddler and then I was pregnant again, I also really wanted to keep the jeans I already had. I mean, I think when you're between, you know, pregnancy and breastfeeding and another pregnancy, the clothes that fit become really precious, right? Like become really precious and you don't want to replace them for these temporary periods of time. Um, and so I couldn't go buy new ones. And so that's how I had mended them. Um, or I figured out how to mend them it was a lot of trial and error. But anyway, yeah. So someone had asked me to teach mending, and I just thought, gosh, this is crazy. No one's going to come, you know? Like I like designed the class and thought, like, well, no one's going to come, and um, and it sold out, and that was just shocking to me. And so then I started teaching mending classes in the Bay Area before we moved here. Um, so then I started teaching a lot. I mean, then I started being asked to teach all over the country. And I had young children and I moved to this rural place. So traveling wasn't necessarily something that was easy for me anymore. Right. I couldn't just like hop on the plane at an international airport and be gone for, uh, you know, a period of time without uh, securing childcare. So I would, I would teach when I could, or I would teach regionally, that sort of thing. And people just kept asking me to teach. I had a lot of demand for teaching, um, right around when I started writing, make, mending matters. And so I kind of thought, well, I've written a book and I know how to do that and now I had, you know, settled into my life <clears throat> in upstate New York. And I thought, well, let's try it. Let's see how this goes. And so I wrote a proposal for a book on mending. Okay. And um, looked for an agent. And then, you know, we worked on the proposal together and we shopped around publishers and then Mending Matters was born. So yeah, I knew I wanted to write that book. And part of the reason I wanted to write that book was because I couldn't, I didn't have the opportunity for unlimited travel. Certainly not everyone could travel to me that wanted to come to my workshops. I wasn't teaching online at the moment. And I thought, gosh, I just want to like have a tool to send to people. That was my vision. Like, right. I just wanted, to, like, almost like, a, a
0: curriculum or something that could go in your yeah, stead. Almost, yeah.
1: Exactly. Like something I just put in the mail. Right. Um, and so then I thought, well, let's try book.
0: Yeah. And it totally served that purpose for me as a consumer who is like, I have these awesome jeans that I absolutely love with a huge hole in them that's only going to get worse. And yeah. Um, yeah. And so I think that that, that was, that totally worked. Um, okay. So, so, and that book has done really, really well. And what's funny, I was just looking at some statistics that over the course of the pandemic approximately 30% of Americans participated in sewing or clothing repairs, which I thought was really wow. interesting. Yeah. So I mean, I'm glad to see that number one. But also, I feel like you were really ahead of your time. And I mean, people were catching on wanting to take these classes. And um, but you know, there's a lot of mending books out there now. And mm-hmm. I feel like yours really kind of paved the way.
1: Hmm, Well, thank you. Yeah. I mean, I think it was this moment. I mean, Tom of Holland uh, had the visible mending program. He's in uh, the UK and he was doing darning on sweaters and visible darning, high contrast darning. And um, Celia Pym, I think was maybe she's also in the UK. She was maybe around that time, too. Um, So they were some of the first folks that I saw using it as this very visible, high contrast form. Um, you know, and then, of course, there's a very long history of boro um, mending in Japan. And then when you start looking around the world, you realize that cultures had their specific way of building and repairing garments and textiles because they were precious materials. Right. And because um, you couldn't I mean, even my grandmother, when I look at her quilts, my great grandmother's quilts and study the the fabrics in her quilts and things like that. And these were precious fabrics, right? She couldn't just like walk down to the fabric store and buy right. many yards worth of new fabric. right? Um, yeah. So then you start, you know, looking around and noticing that like different cultures had ways of mending and darning and just of course, like sewing and stitching. Right. Um So it actually has like this very long history. But what I look at is how fast fashion altered that history. And and there's some debate around that. But most people would agree that fast fashion really came into being in like the late 90s or early 2000s. Uh, So it's really only like 20 years that we've been in this and the 20 years before that were also obviously really formative. But if you look like before 1980, uh, definitely even before 1990, I mean the way that we purchased and consumed and and cast off clothing has changed so much in the last 20, 30 years.
0: There's really disturbing statistics about like how much – Clothing consumption has gone up. And now there's something called ultra fast fashion. Um, But yeah, but like the amount of clothing that Americans buy in a year, that number has gone up hugely since the time you're talking about.
1: Oh, yeah, it's crazy. I mean, I can even think about that in in my lifetime, right? I can remember like going to the mall in the 80s and early 90s and like, you know, for back to school shopping. Right. And And your mom
0: would buy you like two pairs of jeans and two shirts. And that was it.
1: Yeah that was it. You got like two pair of jeans and two shirts and maybe a sweatshirt. Right? <laughs> yeah. And like that was it. And you, it was just a different way of shopping. And, you know, and there's a lot of interesting um, research on that too. The way the stores were arranged, like I can remember walking into certain stores in the mall and I knew where the jeans section was and I knew where the sweater section was. Right. And that's because it didn't change over all the time. Whereas now the clothes are moving around the store. I think it's something like every 1 to 2 weeks so that it feels like a new experience every time you walk
0: in. Yeah, and, and in uh, the the like ultra fast fashion, it's more more swift than that. It's like two yeah. times a week.
1: It's insane. Yeah. I mean, it's just dizzying, right? I think it's like there's something about that that's dizzying and I think that there's also when you when you st- step back and consider, well, wait a minute, like how can this company be producing this many articles of clothing? and then only selling a certain percentage of them like and then you really i think start to see into like what are people being paid to make these garments. And, and then you realize things like the Rana Plaza, right? And if they're only being paid this tiny amount of money, then what are the conditions like in which they're working under? Plus, and so then like think,
0: the clothes are so cheap that you then discard them right away. And then there's huge amounts of discarded clothing as well. Right.
1: Yeah. And the discarded clothing, I mean, that's it's that's another incredibly challenging um, situation, right? I mean, that's, yeah, that's, that's also just... Um there's so much work to be done around our consumption and also around our production.
0: Yeah, of- totally. And I think mending is a huge solution to this, but you also do like overdying clothes. So yeah. taking a whole garment that maybe you find secondhand or maybe you've had for years in your wardrobe and is a little bit worn out now as far as like stains or something like that. And so talk a little bit about that process of overdying. because I think that's something that people, you know, they go right to mending, but that's another option
1: Yeah. So when I was, again, like started my project, I very quickly refined what I was buying secondhand because I was introduced to plant dyes and natural dyes. Um, And so I realized that if I was looking for fibers that were plant based or animal based, so cotton, linen, hemp, silk wool, um, that were light colors, they didn't have to be white, they could be light yellow, light green. And over dye them or dye them with plant material that I could forage, you know, from from Oakland, from where we lived. And that was just this huge um, eye opening opportunity for me because I realized, oh, my gosh, wait a minute. This can also become a creative practice. Right. Like this can become this process of redesign and dyeing. Um, so that was huge. And I think in some ways, mending matters. um, with the book coming out, and I was teaching a lot of mending workshops, it's also a lot easier to travel with mending tools than it is with dyeing tools, right because dyeing tools are like pots and spoons, and like it's just a lot of volume. so I really have focused on the mending at some point um around mending matters and around that traveling, but the natural dyeing I feel like has always been kind of like um. I don't know, it's so uh, meaningful and enjoyable to me, particularly now that I can grow the dye plants in my garden, forage where I live, um, or, you know, take scraps from the kitchen and turn them into these these creations. Um, and I also think redesign, there's a lot of opportunity with, like, patchwork and, and um, existing textiles and vintage things, too. But anyway, yeah, so then the dyeing became part of the process. And what I loved about that is then, like, let's say I found a secondhand linen top— Um, that was light colored, I could wear it light colored for a while, right? And then I could dye it with a plant material. And then I could dye it again to get a different color. And so then I also felt like there was this ongoing relationship to the garment that could really extend over time. So it even that even reduced its fast fashion potential even farther, right? Because I could wear it light colored, then I could wear it with the first round of dyeing, then the second round of dyeing, then maybe eventually it would need some patches or, um, you know, it kind of just then it had this life.
0: Yeah, that's super exciting. And the potential there is huge and really creative, puts you in a creative position, um, in relationship to your clothing in a way that certainly fast fashion doesn't. So, um, that's right. Yeah, that's super cool. So, okay. So did, did you pitch the third book, um, the new one right afterward or did you have like a two book deal? How did this work?
1: So I, um, so we pitched Mending Matters. I had, you know, worked with an agent and we, um, solicited publishers. And, uh, so let's see, I have to get my math right. So Mending Matters came out in October, 2018. Yes. And, um, so then, uh, fall 2019, is that right? Yes, I think so. Um, My editor came back to me and said, We'd like to do another book. What ideas do you have?
0: Oh, I see. And
1: yeah, so we kind of tossed around ideas, and I said, I had a few ideas, but I thought, well, you know, this Mending Matters really only shares one part of this project. As right. I said, kind of took this narrow view on mending, but there's the dyeing and there's the redesign and there's just kind of the reframing for me. I think in a lot of ways, that was the most impactful, was just reframing my relationship to fashion, reframing my relationship to the clothing I already had and and the clothing I was bringing in. And how could it be part of my fiber arts practice? How could it be part of my sustainable living, you know, lifestyle? Um, how could it really feel integrated instead of just like this thing that existed because I liked clothes and I needed to wear them? Um... So yeah, and you know she agreed. She thought, yeah, okay, let's let's tell the whole story. And so then we developed Make Surf Men. All
0: right, and this is the whole story. So for people who are like, wow, this is so cool, <laughs> this is the book for you because you really are going to get to dive in and get the whole story. And I think that that's really exciting. And um, and I wondered now. I mean, you were talking with the, the very first book, the one that was about paper crafting, mm-hmm. um, that you didn't really have a way to tell the world about your book. Like you yeah. were a little bit in in that spot. And now. You have Instagram. You're very good at Instagram. You have 56.7 thousand followers there right now as I, from this morning. And so um, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how you use Instagram, sort of how you think about the platform, and your, maybe if you have kind of, you know, some strategy ideas there that you could share. I think that's something that people really want to work on and improve on. And so hearing from somebody who's doing it successfully is really helpful, Oh, goodness. (laughs)
1: Um, Yeah, I mean, I think I didn't really intentionally grow my Instagram platform. Um, When Mending Matters came out, I had a following, I had a community on Instagram. But like I said, which isn't to say it's not intentional now, or which isn't to say it's not a business tool now, because it is. It's absolutely a big part of my business, Instagram. But I didn't go into it wanting to create a platform, if that makes sense. Yeah. I went into the blog because I was lonely. Right. <laughs> I just finished graduate school, right? And I wanted to find a creative community where I lived, and I did, and I found some really dear friends and really incredible artists through that blog. And then blogs kind of phased out, and we all kind of moved over to Instagram together. I mean, there was a moment on Facebook. There was a moment on Flickr, right? Yeah. There were these, there were these kind of evolutions until it became Instagram. And I think even when I moved here in 2015, it really still felt like a very personal place to share. Um, And and I kind of decided early on in my motherhood that I didn't necessarily want to share a lot about my children and my mothering. I wanted my online uh, work to be a reflection of my studio. And that's how I even would like conceive of it. Every time I sat down to write a blog or every time I sat down for a social media post is like, how can I bring you into my studio today? Right. And in the beginning, it was very literal. It was like, here's my desk. Right. Here's what's on my desk. Let me show you. Um, So I think. Because it came from that place, and because Make Thrift also came from just really being this personal project that I felt this real passion for, that was in the beginning outside of my work life. It was, um, you know, I had had this work, full-time work in nonprofits, and then I was a mom kind of trying to figure it out and craft. And so I think because of that, I had this... um, ability to enter it as a human as a person right and that I wanted to be there to connect with other people and that's changed a lot in the last couple of years I mean the last maybe two years um the the app has changed a lot and the way that we're using it has changed a lot so I feel like the way that I got started is in some ways not necessarily fair because I don't I don't know how possible that is now and I don't know what that would feel like now um, so what is different? What
0: is different now than then? I mean, I think coming in to all of these things with your own personal curiosity and desire to connect is always a good, you know, way to go. So because it's truly you and what you, you know, what you truly feel and want to do. But, um, but you're right that the app is very different. The expectations are very different. So how do you think it's changed?
1: Well, I mean, I think a couple of things that change and I watched this happen in the craft world, uh, the craft fair world also, I think it changes. And I, and I'm, I just want to say very clearly, I don't necessarily know that this is a good or bad thing. It's just what changes, right? I think it changes when people come in with professional skills around branding and marketing and, um, and can use those skills or hire those skills or whatever, to promote their work in a way that the other folks there don't have access to, right? So I watched this happen in the craft fairs, and I watched it go from, like, we all kind of just, like, had our our folding tables, and we'd, like, put up our folding tables and throw our tablecloths on them and put all our goods out, right? Um, Because, like, the people I was sharing booths with, we all had other jobs. I mean, school teachers and um, people who were adjunct professors and, you know, We had other jobs and we were doing the craft fairs on the weekends. And then I watched it change where then people came in with their booths were professionally designed and professionally branded. Right. And so that was very different. That was a very different feel in terms of that kind of um, just like sharing something that does feel personal. and, And again, very part of the process versus sharing this like professional product. And even the packaging, I mean, oh my gosh, the amount of time I spend now considering packaging and shipping, it's a huge part of my business with an online shop, right? So I think those things change. And I think a big thing that's changed with Instagram is sponsorship. And I think a big thing that's changed are, you know, sponsorships and partnerships. And now you have this app, which can still be so beautiful and so meaningful, and I've made so many dear friends there, but you also now have all these huge companies, giant corporations with teams, social media teams, right, doing the same thing that I'm doing when it's me here and this you know, third bedroom of our house is my studio. And this is where the shipping and this is where the writing and this is where the teaching is all coming out of unless it's warm enough weather that I can be in the barn. So, you know, I, I think that's just it's a very different playing field.
0: Um, and how did you decide what to sell in your shop and, and what what is in there now? Because what you've sold, I mean, you've been selling things, craft things, things you made, for years, it sounds like even in college. Um, and there's an evolution there to kind of what the product, the physical product is. Obviously, you can sell your books, which is great. Um, mm-hmm. And But as far as the other products that are there, talk a little bit about that evolution.
1: Yeah. So I, I closed the shop for many years. <clears throat> um kind of between, I say I had an early retirement from the, from the craft fair world. And then, um, I had my online shop and I, I can't remember exactly when I closed it and exactly when I reopened it, but it was a few years and it was kind of in that time of having my second child and moving across the country where I just thought there's no way I can like set up the shipping around this, you know, like there's, I just didn't have the, um, I just didn't have the tools or the organization to just like have all the packaging ready and all the labeling ready and all that. Um, so when I reopened it, I'm going to say three years ago, I reopened it and I re maybe four. I reopened it with a subscription kit program. And um, at the time, my husband had been laid off and we were in this new place and we really needed the money. And so I thought, OK, what can I sell? You know, just like what can I sell online that feels like it's aligned with my sustainable um, values <clears throat> and like it makes sense in the work that I'm doing with sustainable fashion? And I thought, well, let's try let's try some kits. And so I did these craft kits. It was a subscription kit program where you'd subscribe for three months, kind of based on like a CSA, um, like the farm model, right, of the com- community supported agriculture, where you would prepay ahead of time. So you would pay for three months worth of the subscription and I would send you a different kit each month. And I would do all the prep work in terms of like sourcing the materials and washing and ironing and cutting the materials and packaging the materials. And I would send a little booklet that was like, how to make the project which was kind of taken from my classes so there was a pin cushion um there was uh like trivet and I think the other one was mending like a patch for, for jeans kind of thing um And so I did that, and and I did that for a year, and it was just a tremendous amount of labor. It was so much work just to wash everything, iron everything, cut everything, package everything, ship everything. Um, And so then I thought, okay, how – and that's when I actually brought on my assistant because I just couldn't physically get everything done um, that I needed to get done each week. I had very limited childcare. My kids were little, and there just wasn't enough hours. So she just came in to sort of help with that. And then I thought, okay, you know, when I go to teach, people are always asking me which tools did I use and which materials did I use? And so then we developed mending kits um, to share, you know, with people again who maybe weren't coming to class. And so we did that for a while. And then really in the last year, I've kind of taken a step back and thought, How can this be a little bit more fun, right? Like, I'm not a manufacturer. It's me and my assistant five to 10 hours a week. Like, what can we do that also just feels like it's full of life? And it's, it's joyful, and it's creative and expressive, because I do have a background in the arts, that's still really important to me. Um, that I feel like I'm learning something about the world and about myself through what I'm making. Oh, yeah. That is
0: super important. What a great, (laughs) I mean, that's a great approach to sort of, sometimes when things become drudgery, you don't even realize it. Yeah, exactly.
1: So yeah, so that's kind of, we call this our year of experiments. And that was because when the pandemic happened, and both of my children were suddenly remote schooling, and they're still remote schooling a year later, um, I thought, you know what, everything all these systems I put into place, like 75% of them don't make sense anymore, like 75%. Right. And so the only way that I can approach this is by experimenting is by just giving myself permission to fail and giving myself permission to try again. And also being willing to make like tiny batches of things like 10 or 12, because even sometimes 40 and 50 felt like too much for us. Um, Yeah. So that's kind of where I'm at now.
0: Okay, so there's still mending focus, correct? But there are small batches of of, and they're still kits, correct?
1: Um yeah, well I mean, like it kind of is it's kind of morphing. I feel like we're in this period of evolution. Um they I was doing mostly mending kits and then we did a darning kit, um, where I partnered with a local farm and to get the wool. And uh, a local mill to have it spun into yarn. And then we plant dyed all of the yarn here in my studio. My husband made um, wood darning eggs. And we made darning kits. And then again, it's like everything I create, I joke that... It's like the curse of the artist, right? I'm so focused on the materials and the construction and the craftsmanship that I don't take into account like the incredible amount of labor to finish the kit. I want it to be beautiful and meaningful, but it's not always sustainable from a labor standpoint. Um, So we stopped making those because it was like taking my husband hours and hours to make these darning eggs, you know, that's on the nights and weekends. And so I still have some of that to, to do. But like right now, for example, I have a materials box coming out, which is meant to support Make Thrift Mend. Um, so there's no kit, there's no bag or, or pouch or, or tote to it. It's just the materials. Um, and we have a special edition of mending kits coming out for Make Thrift Mend. But then we're working on another tote bag because we just did our first tote bag. We're going to work on some naturally dyed scarves. So I think it's kind of in this place of morphing. Yes, there will be kits, but we're kind of playing with some very small batch accessories too. And I think um, this is
0: where you play to your strength, which is to say, you were talking earlier about being on Instagram. Um, among peers who are giant corporations with huge teams and huge budgets and mm-hmm. you're trying to do the same thing with just you and maybe your assistant you know in your barn and so you know th- what plays to your strength is being able to make these small batch unique you know can't get it anywhere else made by an expert um supply kits and material kits and things like that because these giant corporations you know it's got a scale and they have to source it in Mm -hmm. China and all the rest and so Mm -hmm. you know that I feel like is the way to set yourself apart
1: yeah I think so I mean you know it's funny I kind of think sometimes like I'm a very long I'm a Capricorn I'm very practical I'm very organized I'm also you know an artist and I'm creative but I suppose think like, well, if this is a 10-year plan, what does that look like? And then I just have to like shake my head because I don't think I have a 10-year plan, you know? And I think I'd really like to have a 10-year plan, but I don't have that yet. And so I think that's also this moment that I've watched so many of my peers go through where we try really hard to give it everything. We try to make these passions and these hobbies into full-time work. And certainly it's enough work to do full-time but is it enough to support you and your family like a full-time job? And I don't really have an answer to that. Yeah. You know, I think that I've, right now I'm just in it and it's a pandemic and I have a six-year-old and a nine-year-old and a book coming out and an amazing assistant. I'm grateful for all of that. But it's, it's very much month to month. And I wonder when it will get to the point where I could have a three or five year plan. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I think that that's, that's honest and, and important to to talk about for sure. Yeah. Um, and so um, I'm wondering if there's anything else we missed that's important to talk about before we get to your recommendations, anything else that you want to talk, talk through? I don't think so. I mean, I think the last thing that I always try
1: to remind people is that like, I've been focused on sustainable fashion for eight years. Like my closet did not just turn over one month, you know, like I still have things that I wear from before when I started make thrift mend. And it it just really is a really slow and I had, you know, my undergraduate work was in sustainability, And then I spent years working in the arts. So I I just think sometimes people get really frustrated that they can't find solutions faster or that they're not like getting it right. And I just always want to remind people that it's a really slow practice and it's just it's going to take time. You know, it's going to take time to feel embodied. It's going to take time to feel aligned. And that's okay. It can take time. and, And that can still be really
0: important. Thank you for that reminder. I think yeah. that's really comforting to hear. Um, and you have a few recommendations. Um, and I want to make sure we have time for those as well. So Sonia Phillip, who's been on this podcast, um, many moons ago, um, has <laughs> a book out, which is amazing. I'm so glad she has a book out, um, with her 100 acts of sewing. So I, it sounds like you have a copy of it. Um, and how I are do. you? Yeah. How are you enjoying <laughs> that one?
1: Ah, well, I love Sonia. I mean, she is, was one of the um, friends who I met not through blogging, actually through a craft fair, um, in the Bay area. And we we're part of the same group of friends and I just adore her as a person and as a maker. And she's also a poet, which is a funny thing that we share. Um, she also went to the same graduate program as I did to study poetry. Um, So, yeah, her book is beautiful. It's called The Act of Sewing, How to Make and Modify Clothes to Wear Every Day. And it's, again, you know, not dissimilar to mine. It's this project that she undertook, 100 Acts of Sewing, to, again, change her own process and her own practice, her own creative practice, by making clothing, making 100 dresses, I think it was, in that first year. Um, And then that project has evolved for her into having sewing patterns design sewing patterns that she sells into teaching and now she has her first book so we get to share in her project and in her um philosophy but also in her pattern making and her designs um through the book and it's so pretty and it's like lots of bright colors like Sonia's always wearing um and it feels like a treasure
0: yeah, I think getting both your book and her book together, it's so synchronous that they came out, you know, together. And yeah. I feel like that would be such a good duo or gift for somebody too. Um, yeah, we were excited about that.
1: We're actually doing an event together, a virtual event, um, with A Verb for Keeping Warm on May 8th, where we're going to do a little book a book event together. Oh, I'm that's
0: great. About. Yeah, so yeah. we've had Christine on the show too. So it's okay. all coming together. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's great. And then yeah. you um, also have um, – a website that I've seen you link to several times in your newsletter called Intersectional Environmentalist. And I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about what that's about.
1: Yeah, it's an amazing website. So I feel like if people haven't been there, um, they should go look. And it's changed a lot. I'm, the, the site has actually changed. Um, but it's just this really beautiful website. And I follow their Instagram account also, um, considering how – Intersectional environmentalism can be, right? So looking at systems of oppression, looking at racism, colonialism, um, you know, looking at these different like sy- systemic um, oppressions and that we are living inside of and under and how can we apply that thinking to environmentalism and how can we also have leaders who are using anti-racism and you know social justice work as part of their environmental work and it I haven't been on the website I just looked at very quickly it looks like the just the design of the website has changed but there's all sorts of um links and things, you know, to different authors and speakers and educators, um, through that website. And I, again, I find their Instagram to just be so informative and inspiring. Um, so I highly recommend it.
0: Yeah. It sounds like following them on Instagram would be a good way to get started understanding their content and then you can go deeper. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's super. Um, and so I wondered, um, how is um, how is um, virtual school going and being home with your mm. kids this year? And how, <laughs> how that's impacted your life? I mean, it's so it's been such a hard year for that.
1: Yeah, it's been really hard. It's just been really hard and um, I don't really think there's any other way to put it. We are going to actually start homeschooling my oldest son starting on Monday um, because the virtual school has been really, really difficult for him. Um, and so we've been working with his and he they both go to public school, so We've been working with his school teacher and um, some of the administrators there to create a plan just for the last quarter. I'm just really hopeful that my kids get to go back to school next fall. Um, so we'll see. I mean, we take it. We take it sort of week by week. My husband is also able to work from home, so we split the childcare and the work hours. We're both working part time, um, which is not enough. But you know, we make do. We work on the nights or weekends when we need to. We've scaled back. I've scaled back as much as I possibly can. One of the reasons I waited to teach at all online is because well particularly with live classes that means I have to be somewhere at a specific time and that's been the most challenging yeah you know emails or things like that I can respond to as the day allows with the kids in remote school Um, but with something like having to show up for you know to teach a class you have to kind of have all everything in order and it hasn't been very orderly
0: (laughs) yeah 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 I think that that I mean it's it I think that that's impacted so many of us and I think it's good to hear like your honest appraisal of how it's been going and um yeah I think it, I think it's helpful to know that you're not alone out there yeah, trying for to sure, for yeah sure. yeah trying to balance yeah. it all so well Katrina this has been really inspiring thank you so much for taking the time to be on the craft industry Alliance podcast thanks for having me Abby I appreciate it and you've been listening to the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today's episode was brought to you by Craftsy. Whether you're new to making or looking to advance skills and a favorite hobby, Craftsy is the place to learn. With over 1,500 classes, there's something for everyone from knitting and sewing to baking and cooking, gardening, embroidery, quilting, and more. Visit CraftsyOffers.com today and get a full year of Craftsy Premium Membership for just $3. That's 97% off the regular price. Start turning your ideas into projects you can be proud of. Thank you so much, Craftsy. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals.